when we talk about the dogmas, right, we're revealing the full face of Christ. We're revealing who he is. He is the truth. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined by Dave, the soul of the new media, Van Vickle. How you doing, Van Vickle? Good. Soul of the new media? Well, I mean, you're certainly not the body of it. That's me. <laughs> no, new, new media is like social media, right? Is that good? Dang it. I meant to say social media. Son of a gun. Well, what is new media? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Who knows the the new era of no gatekeeper uh, media podcasts such. <laughs> Although I guess Ascension Press is our gatekeeper because they're our publisher. So God bless you, Ascension I, Press. I have like such a, a fu- I have a funny like r- like I only have Facebook pretty much. You know, I mean that's the only one I use. Yeah. You know, and um and you don't really use any anymore. But I have an Instagram nope. account because I follow weightlifters and boxers and like fighters <laughs> on that Instagram, and people constantly. <laughs> I don't know, friend you or something like that. And um, I feel so much stress about that because it's like, I, I don't use it, guys. I only follow these, you know, weightlifters and boxers and stuff like that. So now, did you make a mistake of putting your name as the handle for yeah. Instagram? Yeah. Oh, that, that's yeah, what that was dumb. That was, oh, yes. That's you should definitely idea. be strongest man in Pittsburgh at no. Instagram. No, then, 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 no, I'm definitely not the strongest guy <laughs> in Pittsburgh right now. I'm, Probably one of the weaker ones, to be honest. Ooh. And I'm joined today by Dave, probably one of the weakest people in Pittsburgh, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? I'm okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going through the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. What a beautiful title. I wish this is where you know the church is not learning enough from the evangelicals. We should totally have branded this. Like it should be called like Red 847. Be like, ooh, what is 847? Well, it's uh, John chapter 8. Uh, and then, you right. know, like they do all these things with numbers and colors, like orange, not orange theory, the women's circular training routine, but orange is a family conference, like family ministry conference. And and I get all these orange emails. I'm like, what is, oh, right. I bought that book and never read it. Yikes. But they do all those things like passion six, two, seven. Yeah. Right, right. Right. So they totally should have given this some sort of catchy title, like, like what, what known him in the breaking of the bread. Yeah. Yeah. On the reciprocity, right. but no, but no, bunch <laughs> of scholars, bunch of scholars. So, to, so we're gonna what we're gonna try to do is get through, finish the document here. I mean, it's uh, finish the part that we want to talk. Yeah, yeah, that we want to yeah. talk about. And uh, th- today's discussion is all about like the kind of the nature of faith. Um, they talk about uh, several different aspects of like w- what faith is, uh, what the different aspects of it are, how it applies, which has been a lot throughout the document, but they get specifically on this topic now. And they talk about like, they start out by basically saying like, look, we have to recognize that there's a growth of faith. There's a growth of faith. As your children are joining us in the background. Okay, back in. We talk about a growth of faith that uh, that Peter, even Peter, has to grow in faith, right? And they talk about this, that uh, faith is a journey. It's something that you're invited along. And that first paragraph, that 42 that we're talking about, it ends with just like a basic, you know, uh, kind of summary there. Going beyond the basic rudiments of Christian doctrine and faith, solid food is directed to believers who in their Christian lives exercise discernment of good and evil, 
to those whose entire existence is illuminated by the light of faith, right? So there's like a qualitative aspect to faith, right? It's not all or nothing. Uh, and what they're saying is like, look, the solid food, the, the meat of Catholicism, the meat, the moral teachings, the, the, the serious food is directed towards those who live their life entirely by the light of faith. And so paragraphs 42, 43, and 44 can all be connected because as we're trying to give people the gospel, as we're evangelizing people, as we're trying to impart to them a reason to convert and embrace Christ Jesus, a reason to have faith, um, we have to realize, number one, that uh, faith requires growth. Like Dave said, it's not all or nothing. People grow in their faith. So we need to understand that sometimes there's milk, sometimes there's solid food, but there should be a trajectory of growth, right? We need to help people grow in their faith. Number two is that uh, the crowd. I always talk about this. I tell people all the time, when you read the gospels, circle the word crowds or underline it and, and remind yourself, crowds ain't disciples. Right. And especially in the four gospels, crowds are often... Uh, the villains, even right. if you want to put it right. that way, that Jesus in, explicitly in John chapter two, verses 23 to 25, it says many began to believe in Jesus at that time, but he did not believe himself to them for he knew what was in man and needed no one to testify to man. So it's like, yeah, you might think highly of me, but I'm not going to give you the gift of faith because I know what you're going to do. You're going to use it for your own gain. And then you have the very next verse, which is chapter three. Unfortunately, we separate the two. But now there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus who came at night to Jesus. And then you go into John chapter six. When Jesus multiplies the loaves, they want to make him bread king, right? I mean, think about all right. the honor. They believed in him. But what did Jesus do? He immediately ran away into lonely places, walked on the water in the middle of the night to get away from the people. And then the people find him. And he's like, you're, you're not here because you had the message of eternal life. You're here because you ate loaves and you were filled. You want to make me the God of your belly. So crowds aren't disciples. And so in paragraph 43, we talked about the different types of healing. Now, Dave, you have been a part of like healing ministry, right? Well, yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, I've been around yeah, it. Okay. I've been around it. Okay. So you know the currents, right, of people right. and the relationship of faith to healing. Right. So sometimes they say the reason why you weren't healed is because you don't have any faith. Yeah. Right. 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 Have yeah. you heard people yes, say I, that? Yeah, people have literally <laughs> said that to me. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that so funny? Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Like I've literally given my entire life to the church. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um but so we had a guy become Catholic because I said, So why are you here? And he said, My sister died. And I'm like, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear. And he goes, No, no, no. My church killed her. And I'm like, What? what? And he he was a part of a charismatic church. Oh. And they told his sister when she had brain cancer. If you go to the doctor, that's proof that you don't have faith in oh Jesus. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so she so didn't evil. go until she couldn't speak. She goes to the doctor. They say it's too late. She died within a week. And he goes, do Catholics believe in doctors? And I just passed him Sirach. I can't remember what chapter. It's like 34 or something where it's like God wants to heal you. Pray for healing. And the way God heals you is through his doctors. And you're like, oh. Oh, look at that. That's right. interesting. So this document wants to show how, because we hear that word faith in response to healing. So uh, they point out, I just want to walk through this, right? You got the crowd, you got people who are enamored and admired. It says the phenomenology we find is quite varied. So it's not, I have perfect faith. Jesus sees my faith uh, and he gives okay. me the gift of now healing. Yeah. Jesus performs miracles without express mention of faith. Mark 1, 14 to 45, 3, 1 through 6. Thanks to the faith of the petitioners who intercede on behalf of another person. Come and heal my daughter. You know, the whole the centurion who says, you know, I have people under my command. It wasn't the daughter's faith. It was the centurion's faith, right? In spite of a faith that considers itself scarce, 
or precisely thanks to faith. The disciples are encouraged in many ways to grow in faith in God and in his power and in understanding the unique position of Jesus and God's plan. So if the healing comes as a result of faith, it comes to inaugurate faith, like, oh, I don't believe you. And it's like, really, you don't believe me? So that you may know that the Son right. of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And for some, it's at the faith of others, which I think of the ecclesial faith. Right, right. right. I, I just attended the Church of the an Ordinariate Parish, the Anglican use in the Catholic Church, and uh, it's right over by my house, and we were godparents in a baptism, beautiful baptism. So we went to their high mass, and then immediately following was the baptism. And this whole notion of, like, what do you ask for God's church, right, when it comes to baptism, right? It's And they hammer home the ecclesial dimension of faith and their rite of baptism. It's like, I, as parents and godparents, do swear, amen, and you have to say amen like 15 times. Oh, really? Right in that, it was, yeah, it is awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. And it's like really driving home. Do you acknowledge that you will help that child to be raised in faith? I do. Amen. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And then lastly, paragraph 44 talks about the death of Jesus that puts the test to the faith of the apostles and disciples. It lays bare what they thought, because here's one of the things that Jesus is challenging people is you have to be so open to God that you can surrender what you want from God with what God is trying to do. So you got to give up this notion of a political Davidic Messiah and understand that, yes, it, there is political implications, but Jesus is the savior of the whole world, not just of the Jewish people, not just to get rid of the Romans, right? So their understanding of prophet, of Messiah, of the Christ, the anointed one, right, of God even, had to under they had to wrestle with who Jesus was. And here on the feast day of the conversion of St. Paul, no more acute expression of that conversion. Like he went to Sinai in, in the deserts of Arabia to figure out how does the Old Testament culminate in Jesus. Gomer, did you know that today's the feast day of the conversion of St. Paul? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I thought by texting that to you this morning, you would get even more excited about talking to me, but you just <laughs> rolled your eyes and was like, of course, I know that. Uh, so in that uh, in that paragraph 44, <laughs> I want to point out um, there's one interesting thing that they get into where they give like a little class on evangelization. Did you notice this? Um, yes. They say yes, it's awesome. the, the pericope of Emmaus provides uh, some valuable clues for initiating others in the path of faith, walking at the pace of those who, although disappointed, express some concern, listen to their concerns and welcome them. Contrast them patiently with the light of salvation history reflected in Scripture, stimulating the desire to know more and better the plan of God. This opens the way to a faith that matures in the sacramental and ecclesial dimensions proper to faith. That that's like a that's like a little awesome little evangelization class that they give yeah. solely from uh, just drawing out sacred Scripture. Right? Uh, it's it's beautiful, but uh, you know they're obviously talking about how to. They presented an issue with this document, and the issue is we need to draw faith out. We need to grow faith in people, and this is this is a model for it. You know, and when I look at the road to Emmaus, what I see is a very human reaction to the disappointment in what happened to Jesus, right? Yeah. Here were people who followed Jesus, and the death of Christ was so traumatic, they went away from Jerusalem. It's like, no, 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 you're supposed to stay in Jerusalem, go towards Jerusalem. So they were going in the wrong direction, and Christ— literally went to go meet yeah. them, right? And it's so fascinating because when I talk to atheists who are stone cold against the resurrection, and I explain to them how the historical accounts presented in the gospel show you people who were the closest to Jesus 
rejected and were even hostile to the very notion of his resurrection because they saw how real his death was. They couldn't humanly believe in the resurrection. And so what happens? Well, that you have the gathering of the disciples, the breaking open of the word, and then once he breaks the bread, their hearts were set on fire and they left that place. It becomes the very pattern for the mass, right? So you have the the gathering, the breaking of the word, the breaking open of the bread, or the breaking open of the word, the breaking of the bread, and then the dismissal. And you have this pattern that is so powerfully liturgical, but it's also very human and how God, the divinity of God, comes into that very human response. So yeah, this is a mini masterclass on evangelization. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's like, uh, I mean, I kind of wish I would have thought about it before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the next uh, paragraph, they talk about the need to discern with patience and in particular, the Bible being a reflection of salvation history presents all these different situations in which faith plays a role, right? Uh, lack of faith, uh, maturing of faith, great faith, like in people like Moses, right? Uh, And they say, I'll pull out one little quote here. For this reason, one must appreciate the value of incipient faith, the faith that is on its way to maturity, the faith that in its desire to know God does not exclude unresolved questions and hesitations. The imperfect faith finds some difficulty in, in adhering to the totality of the contents that the church holds as revealed. Now, I want to say one thing about this. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine, (laughs) kind of a pet peeve of mine. I've encountered many people who would have what I'd almost call a blind faith, right? Where they're just like, it's, it's like, it's, it's not a piety. It's maybe even a false piety. The, the church has never, ever, ever asked you to have faith without any reason at all, right? Uh, They want you to wrestle with questions. The church wants you to do that. And so I think this is like an important thing that so many parents, when a kid starts to talk about like, well, I don't know if they're, I don't know if, if there is a God, you know, they're confronting like things like evil in the world and stuff like that. And parents see that as sinful. In actuality, it's perfectly normal. And in actuality, all of us should be struggling with these big questions. Every single one of us. Now we should not remain in the struggle. We should try to make progress here, but Without a doubt, like a deep faith comes from the struggle of the questions and not to be afraid of that kind of thing. Yeah. And so what we talk about is an understanding of we don't need to have perfect faith because then that would deny that faith actually grows. And so faith is not perfect, but needs to be right. That is sincere. That is on the way. And that's part of the big reality of the sacramental life is they're not efficacious where there is no faith. But they can be efficacious where there's a mustard seed of faith, right? And it is in proportion, the grace that is able to be enacted in our lives is in proportion to the amount of room that we willfully give to God, right? That's part of conversion. And that's why people often have one, two, three, four conversions throughout their life or these these big kind of tentpole moments where they're like, okay, I I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I was living this way. I was raised Catholic. But then I went on this retreat and... You know, whites became black, blacks became white, day became night, night became day. Like, oh my goodness. And they go deeper. It's not that they abandon what happened before, but it's an ever deepening. And that's part of the growth of faith. And to deny that by making it, you know, by having some bizarre sense of perfect faith um, loses the vital reality. And that's what we kind of want to 
under we want to give people as one buddy of mine in our household used to say all the time boy that mustard seed sure is small he would say that all the time if you have faith the size of a mustard seed you can move mountains you can say to this mountain be uprooted and thrown into the sea and think about that if you can say that you know move mountains and it's the size of a mustard seed it's okay you can humbly say lord jesus help thou my unbelief yeah Amen. The next paragraph, they move on to talk about just some reflections on like levels of faith and the necessity of a level, a certain level of faith with fruitfulness and reception and validity of sacraments. Um, and they just, you know, point out that like, look, there's certain people who, who aren't Catholic. We don't, we ask them to not receive communion. Why? Because they have not assented to the fullness of the Catholic faith. Uh, and they just point out like, look, this isn't, doesn't have anything to do with elitism because that would despise the faith of the simple. And we've all started with the faith of the simple. That's not what we're trying to do here at all. So it's just a, a little point, sticking point there for them uh, that they wanted to comment on. They move on in the next few paragraphs to talk about the different aspects of faith, the different ways that faith uh, you know, kind of shows itself, right? Um, faith in the church, faith in a person, faith uh, the, uh, in God, right? All these kinds of things. And then it moves on to this interesting paragraph, the Reformation and its influence. And I want to have a thorough discussion with Gomer about this one, because I think it's very interesting, because I think I would have immaturely switched a lot of the sentences that they put down. Uh, It starts out by saying, the Reformation has exerted an influence that is hardly overestimated on the supremacy of the individual act of faith over the confession of ecclesial faith. And so just to point out here, they, they talk about individual faith as kind of relationship, and then confession is the word they use for actually joining the faith, like actually saying, I, I am a Catholic, I believe in the faith. Yeah. And they say, for this reason in these approaches, faith is described less as confession than as a personal relationship of trust. Faith in someone, and at least tangentially, is opposed to doctrinal faith, faith in something. I... Love the paragraph, and I can see myself in it a little bit. And and in that paragraph in particular, I can't, I, I don't, I didn't underline it for some reason, but I'm pretty sure that it talks about uh, the the influence of this kind of thinking on the Catholic Church. You will see this in your parishes. You will see that there are people there who will say things like, "We don't need to learn about this. Just teach us about Jesus. We don't need to learn about yeah. morality. Just teach us about Jesus." And that is an example of a personal faith that kind of rejects the confession of faith. And the you know the Catholic point of view, and actually the whole entire reason for this document, the sacramentality of it, is that when we talk about the dogmas, right, we're revealing the full face of Christ. We're revealing uh, who He is. He is the truth, and so we can't just uh, ignore that, right? And that that is the Catholic answer to this. Gomer, what did you think when you were reading this paragraph? So I think this is again the reason why we had to bring this up is because I keep seeing over and over again evangelists who we have learned a lot from our Protestant brothers and sisters, and that doesn't mean we cannot keep learning from them. But there is a fundamentally different stance from the average evangelical versus the average Catholic or Orthodox or High Church, Anglican even. And when we talk about this, it is a sacramental biblical worldview. There, For some people in the Protestant side of the equation— sacraments are fundamentally different than 
or even opposed to faith, personal faith. Because in order to have the sacraments, you have to have a hierarchy, you have to have a priesthood, you have to have worthy sacraments. And when they hear that, all they see is works, man trying to earn his salvation. But when you have a sacramental biblical worldview, you see exactly what this document points out, that when God reveals himself throughout salvation history, it's always in a sacramental way. And when we respond, and this is paragraph 51, when we respond, it's always in a sacramental way. But what the Reformation did is it separated the, the two things of my individual interior act of personal faith from the confessional faith of the church. In fact, uh, you might not know this, but a lot of churches are known as confessional churches or right. confessing churches right. that became like state religions, like Swedish Lutheran church and all right. this stuff. But then there became a whole other movement that is called the free church movement, and they were people who weren't affiliated. And those are the forerunners of your modern non-denom. And literally uh, from the 1700s, there's a, a, a flyer that someone had a picture of from a museum that I saw, and it's like, come on in for a comfortable seat and a beautiful message. And I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, that's like literally, I literally just heard that a week ago like at the, at the local non-denom. And so within this perspective, in paragraph 51, the Fides Qua Fides Que, spend time on these things because they want to sharpen the understanding that within the sacramental economy, the church is not just a loose association of believers. The church is the ground sacrament dispensing grace, right? And so to be a part of the church is to be a part of the elect. It's to belong to God. But then they also make this wonderful distinction. They said that not only did the Protestant Reformation, and not all Protestants, again, but the Protestant Reformation separated faith as a personal interior act from a confessing ecclesial act, but it also separated, or it, it it really focused on my act of faith being the same thing and my certainty of it being the same thing as my certainty of salvation, right? Because, you know, you got to have faith in order to be saved. And so what they did was they made this one-time explicit act of faith in, in the risen Lord Jesus, the dead and risen Lord. They made that one-time act of faith to be the assurance of salvation, Right, So not living a faithful life, which is actually what the word in Hebrew, faith, whenever you translate, is always faithful, right? So they separate these things. And so it becomes more just my personal trust in God and less my, the totality of, of the history and drama and corporeality of the sacramental faith that we need to have. So I think it's so important that we have to get past the subjective privatization of faith. The subjective privatization of faith. Luther did not intend that. He did not intend that. Right. He wanted to reform the Catholic faith. But in order to say Luther is above popes, Luther is above councils, Luther is above your local bishop, he had to say, well, it's sola scriptura, but it's my interpretation of sola scriptura, right. and I'm convinced of this. Personal, subjective, right? That's not the church. That is not the church. And so, and that's not the biblical vision of the church. Yeah. And, you know, we've spoken about how, like, God isn't limited by the sacraments. He can move with his spirit anywhere he wills. What we have to remember is the church protects and rules, right? The sacraments. So when we respond to God sacramentally, we got to play by the rules, right? The, the church is the, the one who protects those sacraments and, you know, gives us the norms and everything that we need to know. So, uh, you can't really take the sacraments out of the church because the church was has that privileged uh, 
kind of throne, right, of where they protect it from. So, so moving on, yeah. right? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, uh, when we go into paragraph 52 and 53, we start looking at how faith, they, they call it the fundamental equality of all believers in the faith. The personal faith of each believer can have varying degrees, both with regard to the intensity of the relationship with the Trinitarian God and with regard to the degree to which its contents are made explicit. Okay, so it's a personal nature, so it grows with you as right. a human person. Okay, and as you begin to appropriate the truths revealed in faith, right, your faith becomes more and more perfect. It becomes more and more real. It becomes more and more holistic as it goes and grows into all the different aspects of your life. But this is uh, where we talk about implicit faith in the document in paragraph 53. Did you go through that, Dave? Did you like that? Yeah, I, I did. I, well, I liked it, but I, I, like, I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Like, I liked it in the sense that it kind of has, like, been rubbing on me for a while, you know? So I love, they start out by saying, in the history of theology, the question of the indispensable minimum has been raised with regards to knowledge of the faith. And that is standard very interesting. Western Christian. <laughs> that's the standard Western mind. Yeah. The East would never think that way, right. but we totally do. Yeah, right. No, I do. No, well, I, I mean, here's the thing is that I was, <laughs> so, yeah, I know I'm totally backing over myself, but I have flip-flopped on this issue on several occasions and always come back to the fact that, um, look, he's, he's not, he's the way and he's the life, but he's also the truth. And, we have to we have to judge some way of knowing him, right? I mean, there has to be some mm -hmm. way of knowing him, and I think that is the truth. And uh, you know, it moves on to say, uh, you know, according to Thomas Aquinas, not everyone should be required to have the same degree of explicitness in terms of how to reflect the contents of faith, but that basically the creed, you know, the creed is that that minimum that we kind of hold that you should adhere to the articles of the creed uh, in order to express that public that public faith right express that faith that you have in order to be part of of this uh sacramental economy and believe it or not that is a stretch for some people today uh mm -hmm. there are churches that you listen to the music of there are churches that you probably listen to speakers from i'm not pointing at you gomer i'm pointing at the audience <laughs> uh that you know have issues with the current creed and, and in fact have issues yeah. with even just like the the person of Jesus Christ. So yeah, there is a famous book that came out, I believe, in the '90s, maybe late '80s, called "Why Christianity Must Change or Die," and it's by Archbishop Spong, and he was an Anglican or Episcopal bishop, and he wrote this. And I didn't know it at the time. I saw it at a Barnes and Noble, and I opened it up and I read through it uh, a couple of pages here and there. I was probably 15. You know, I didn't have a intellectual leg to stand on. But I remember being like deeply filled with rage yeah. <laughs> at, at the very title of the book, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Because as a Catholic, the understanding that I had in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, where we were kind of in this siege mentality, we were surrounded by a lot of anti-Catholicism. Not everyone was, but we definitely felt it. And so understanding that we conserved the tradition of the apostles and the early church fathers, like that was a big understanding. So to change or die seemed pretty dire. And what it was was a book that went through the articles of the creed and attacked every single one. Because I remember reading the first page and it said, God as creator, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, whoa, like not even the basic tenets right. of the faith. So it's funny that we call it a minimum content of faith. But for some people, even that is too much. Right. It's a bridge too far. Right. 
Now, I also want to point out the reason why the church talks about this minimum, uh, what was the phrase? Let me get it right. The indispensable minimum in regard to faith. This is how I explain it. There are some people who can talk in explicit, deep, multi-hour-long detail about the Trinity, the relations, right. the energies, all the things. Uh, maybe you can't do that if you're listening to us. Maybe you can't do that, but that doesn't mean you deny the Trinity. St. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, maybe, something like that, he said, question mark, um, where he says, he loved me, talking about Christ, he said, he loved me and he gave himself for me. That might be enough, Christ right. died for my sins. Right. That might be enough for people to understand how did he die for me. So I was just at A&M at uh, the St. Mary's Catholic Student Center, which I love that place and I love those people. And they asked me to give a talk on the atonement. And I had 25 minutes. There are people in that room who whose faith in the dead and risen Lord never progressed beyond. Yeah, he on his cross, he took my sins. He died for me. He died for my sins. And that that's why he's, you know, we depict the crucifix. Like, that's it. And then I start going into the theologies of atonement, theologies plural. I think not everyone in that room needs to know right, that of in order to have salvation. But, but it draws you deeper into the mystery if you're doing it correctly. So, you know, you don't need to know that St. Amselm had this watershed moment of the satisfaction theory of atonement versus the ransom theory of atonement of the church fathers. You don't need to know that to know that Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Right, so that's what we mean in this indispensable minimum. What level of explicitness do I need to have? And to me, it's so beautiful that the rosary, that in the middle of mass, we pray the symbol of our faith, that is the creed. You know, yeah. Even in the uh, the exorcism ritual, by the way, what you pray the creed? What you pray the creed? Which one? Well, you used to pray the Athanasian Creed. There it is. <laughs> I was hoping you would Why? say that. Why? Oh. Because the Athanasian Creed is what do they used to call it? The war it cry is, of the yeah, church. Yeah, it's so aggressive. It is so it aggressive. Is so right? aggressive. <laughs> if you haven't, if you don't know that that creed, Google it and read yeah. it. The Creed of Saint Athanasius. It's not he didn't no, he actually didn't write. write it, but it was it was definitely inspired by his uh, pro Trinitarian outlook on life. Yeah. Did they used to do that in the old right? Yeah. Okay, they don't do that in the new right. Uh, I think you use the the. I have to look. Sorry. You got, you're I think game. there's just a quote from My Little Pony or something. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Moving on. Um, so with the creeds being the minimum of faith, they talk a little bit about lack of faith, uh, but, I love but not, not the scarcity of knowledge, they say. The opposite of faith yeah. is not the scarcity of knowledge, but the obstinate rejection of truths. And that is where we run into issues. And I, this is this is one of the mo more frustrating things on earth to me. <laughs> is knowing the bulwark of our faith, right? Knowing the fathers, the saints, the doctors, the incredible men and women who, you know, we, we stand on their shoulders today, that someone would encounter a hard truth of the faith, say they can't understand it, and, and decide that, they're, that the faith is wrong is a yeah. difficult position for me to understand. It's very difficult. Uh, what we're called to do in some cases is just assent with faith. You know, even if we can't understand it, sometimes we're just called to assent with faith and, you know, it could be different forms of submission to the church's teaching, but some submission yeah. is, is important there. And, and I, I, I think that's interesting that they point out, look, it's not just the scarcity of knowledge. It's not the scarcity of knowledge, but it's obstinate rejection. 
And for me, the, what was perfectly illustrated was my first two years of doing inclusion. I used to run it twice a semester for baptized Protestants to enter the Catholic Church. So you dispense with 90% of the RCIA in order to focus on areas where they need to grow, and then you bring them into the church. And you have people who would sit through my class on papal infallibility, on the councils, on the you know, College of Apostles, all of these things. And they're, oh, yeah, that's biblical. That's awesome. You, know, you go through and you read the church fathers on this stuff. They're right there. They're totally in alignment. And then I spend the second half of the semester with them talking about moral issues where the church diverges from Protestantism or from widespread Christianity. And you know what I get? I get people who say, I won't do that. I won't do that. I can't believe that. So this one woman on in vitro fertilization because we did a sexual medical morality yeah. thing. She said, no, no, I refuse to believe that. I go, oh, oh I, I assumed it was because she was a surrogate mother or had to use surrogacy. And she's like, no, I have no experience in this, but that's stupid. And I said, well, maybe, maybe if you believe that Jesus started the papacy on Peter and you believe in the College of the Apostles and the bishops as the successors, that maybe you just don't have enough insight that an hour and a half long class could give sure. you. And, may, and she's like, no, I'm done. And she walked away from the class. That's obstinacy. I'm like, how can you believe right. the first half? Yeah, that's obstinacy. That's what we're talking about. And last paragraph, we got to wrap up now, but. There was a great line at the very end of 55, which I think those of us who form people in the sacraments need to hear. Others, however, are only believers, quote, in name and by custom. I believe they're quoting Hugh of St. Victor, who was yeah. a contemporary, more or less, of Aquinas and Bonaventure. These receive the sacraments together with other believers, but without any thought for the goods of the world to come. Here, so that was another quote, here a crucial element of Christian faith is mentioned, whether future goods are expected and whether this believing hope is strong enough to guide human action, a.k.a. do you really want communion with God or are you getting it, this baptism or your first Holy Communion or your confirmation because you're Irish or you're Mexican or, or you're tokenism. whatever, right? You're, you're doing the minimum, you know, right? Yeah, you're doing, you're, yeah. And so what, what the church from the very early days saw was, listen, you have to have, you don't have to have perfect faith, but you have to have real faith in God and in the dead and risen Lord Jesus. And you have to desire union with him. Without any of that, how can the sacraments do what they symbolize? Amen. Yeah, and they, uh, I, you know, honestly, I this document they have such an understanding of what is going on in the normal everyday church life that we're all involved in, and I'm so thankful for it. I hope that this has been fruitful for you. Uh, I know, I know, it has been for us to discuss it with you, and we've gotten lots of feedback on this and lots of emails. So, kind of a, got a hint there that it was fruitful for a lot of you. What we need to do is let this be a starting point and jump deeper into this document and really let it take fruition in the lives in our parishes and in our own personal lives. So, yeah, I think I think it'll be years as we digest right. this document yeah. that'll be going forward. All right. Thank you all. Um, thanks to Essential Press for helping us out and being so amazing. Uh, head on over to EssentialPress.com. Find out more. And of course, listen to that uh, Bible in a year with Father Mike Schmitz. Ooh, so nice. God bless. Bye.